Kunz. This show is all about the people behind the science of so. biotechnology and medical devices. Through the stories of the people, I hope that Lab Rats to Unicorns is able to describe the transformative process of you know, how an idea starts in the lab and eventually becomes a life-saving treatment or a product that, that helps patients with diseases. Life-saving. Well, I'm really excited about today's podcast. Uh, we've got a dynamic duo on today, and I'm going to start with uh, making the first introduction to Edie Stringfellow. Uh, Edie is a vehemently committed to developing ecosystems, and it shows. Stringfellow received her bachelor's in communications and business management from Illinois State University. A cardinal, right? Redbirds. Card uh, Redbirds. <laughs> Redbirds. <laughs> Attending then Boston College and receiving her master's in international relations and affairs. Her professional career is more than impressive. She served as practice development manager for Nutter, a senior business development consultant at the Dolan Company, and more recently as senior director of diversity, equity, and inclusion at MassBio. And she now serves as vice president of ecosystem development at the Center for Global Health and Innovation. We're so lucky to have her on the show today to discuss her lengthy and notable career achievements on this episode. Just share a little bit about her background and her journey. We're also joined by Dr. Gayathri Srinivasan. Uh, her career and research accomplishments are, are quite remarkable. Uh, Gayathri received her PhD from the Ohio, the Ohio State University in microbiology, where her research led to the discovery of the 22nd amino acid. She then headed to the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, to serve as a postdoctoral fellow before serving as a technology licensing associate there. She also then served as executive board member of M2D2 at the University of Massachusetts at Lowell. And she currently serves on the programming committee of Autumn and as the managing executive director at the Office of Corporate and Foundation Relations at Emory University. Her work and career are inspiring. Um, her experience we know today will really infuse this conversation. And I'm really delighted to have um, each of my friends here on the show today, especially as we think about um, the Atlanta emerging ecosystem. As many know, um, Portal Innovations is um, actively engaged in the Atlanta life sciences ecosystem and very excited to be collaborating with both Emory um, as well as, you know, our partners at CGHI. So maybe I'll start with uh, a question for Edie, if you don't mind. Um, maybe just begin with what got you interested in just the concept of like ecosystems and, and then ultimately having that in your title. Oh, I'm so honored to be here. Love you both. Huge fan. Um, Portal Innovations, Lone G for years, and we'll go into that. Uh, what got me started is kind of a, I'm going to try to do a 30-second cliff note of this. Long story short, I started my first 15-year careers out of college in sports and entertainment and film. Um, I was very good at what I did. I loved what I was doing. I was uh, ESPN's first black women associate director uh, on that side of the house, uh, production and network operations, and went on to work uh, to cover NFL and international football. So had great opportunities to uh, work with English Premier League, um, the Italian Serie A League, became a Juventus fan. Uh, my international exploits took me to Pretoria, South Africa, Germany, and of course locally with Canada and Mexico. But with that all being said, um, I remember being in Germany and finding out that a few of my family members had died from sickle cell disease complications. 
And I came back and wanted to hang out with my brother who has uh, a severe sickle cell disease. And when I went to the hospital with him, I I was horrified at how he was treated and how he was viewed. Uh, He was seen as someone that was seeking drugs and complaining for no reason. And I'm thinking if we're from our middle class background, what about people who have lesser resources, how they're treated and how they're affected? And me not knowing, and I felt very ignorant at the time because I wasn't as knowledgeable, of course, as I am now about sickle cell disease and how the whole system interacts with each other, how doctors and the medical schools and the researchers and the pharmaceutical companies and biotech and investment and the government relations and FDA. And it it was just such a whirlwind to find everything out at a short time. So I felt that this was my new calling and passion was to go into this industry and turn it on its heads because you're neglecting the people, you're, you're neglecting the end user of who you're trying to who benefit from this most. And it has to be a way that we could do good and do well at the same time. So going into research, I had no idea how to connect or interact with people. I just knew that I would Google the drug. And usually you have a quote from the person who's the CEO. So that's who I would call as the CEO. And people are like, who are you and why are you calling? And I said, it doesn't matter who I am. So I said, you know, I'm going to find a way to go into the industry. So I started my whole career over. I went back and got my master's in my 30s. And after that, um, I became a, um, I I learned from the best. I worked at the Massachusetts uh, Medical Law Report to learn how everything intersects. Because nothing happens without law policy. Then from there, I went to work at a law firm. Uh, and practice development management for life sciences and medical device litigation groups. But I fell in love with this up-and-coming entrepreneur uh, startup community. And, oh, my God, it was just like heaven sent to, to be on a cutting-edge discovery and have a front-row seat. So from there, I went on to become a director of patient recruitment for a clinical research agency. Uh, learned that aspect of the house, how you go about um, – Inclusion, exclusion, exterior, and get finding loopholes there that we're missing critical information and data. So how do we close the gap for access, opportunity, and distribution to participate in clinical trials? So from there, I went to on to Massachusetts uh, Biotechnology Council, but I met G and learned from the 1,400 CEOs there about discovery and bench to bedside and everything that goes into this. And what science should we be focusing on? Indication is disorders in regards to rare disease and global health innovation. And from there, I went to become a consultant for Biocom California. And now I find myself here at the Center for Global Health Innovation, where we want to be the go-to destination for uh, global health and biomedical sciences and leveraging all the assets that we have in a local ecosystem on a hyper-local level, but able to scale make it feasible and sustainable for others to use here and beyond. So uh, sorry for the, the long story, but... I love the story. It's it a, wasn't it's an a, easy way to get here. <laughs> you're, a re- you're a renaissance woman. I mean, when I think about this, you know, to get to where you are, but it's really inspiring to hear you talk about how you got there, and it really didn't start that way. Um, you were motivated really from a personal experience. And I've found, and maybe each of you have as well, that um, that's what's interesting kind of about life sciences and healthcare is that, you know, most of the people that, that I interact with were affected in some way by a, a personal tragedy or, um, you know, a family member that had cancer, whatever the case might be that causes them to 
to act and then and then move in that direction and try to make an impact. Um, but hearing your story and how you got here is really uh, cool. And I want to come back to maybe some comparisons around what you learned in the first part of your career and how it's affecting you with a maybe a bigger, more macro view um, around the patient and how you're you know using those experiences and the ones you've had more recently to kind of build this novel ecosystem within within Atlanta and the Southeast. But before I I do, I might flip over to Gayathri. You know, your path also took you through Boston. Maybe you could talk a little bit about um, the road you took and what some of the notes that um, you can share along the way with your observations, um, particularly with your experiences there, you know, at MIT and um, and then what happened after that and kind of what that what that ecosystem is like and how it's informed the way that you're you're focused on um, activities in Atlanta. Sure. Thank you, uh, John and Edie. <clears throat> what you said is so uh, so so passionate and you know so it's it's a calling, right? For me, unfortunately, it's not. I didn't uh, go uh, the through a path of uh, a personal. Um, uh, reason, I went through a different path in the sense that I did my PhD and I went uh, to MIT for my postdoc and I was going to start to do, um, you know, an academic um, position. And during that time, I was realizing that my interests were very basic science focused and, you know, funding for basic science was drying up. And I had to ask myself, who am I and what can I do with my uh, qualifications now that you know, I may not be uh, going through a traditional academic route. So what is there out, you know, uh, out there for me with my background? And I had to really um, understand where my um, interests lay. And I realized that, okay, I can't do science, but can I support science? Because I do have a, an extreme passion for science and learning about uh, interesting things. They don't have to be life sciences. They could be anything. I'm just drawn towards understanding and getting into the knowledge. Um, inf- sometimes it almost seems to me it's almost like information for the sake of information and learning rather than any application. So in some ways, starting my career in MIT's licensing office was excellent because it was not learning information for the sake of information and knowledge. It was how to apply um, things that are being built, being studied into something that could be a gadget or some novel, uh, tangible asset that could be out in somebody's hands or somebody's computers. And so after that, I moved to UMass Medical School, unlike MIT, where everybody was flocking to, you know, get their hands on their technology. UMass Medical School, although it was only 50 miles away, nobody was flocking. And so it was uh, an interesting experience where you had to learn how to um, see what assets were there and be out there. Right. So being out there made me meet with uh, Edie and others um, to see how to leverage what we had, maybe technologies that were not quite beyond the preclinical zone, but needed a lot of resources to get to the a point where it could be either acquired as a licensing opportunity or a startup opportunity. And so um, that was a really um 
it was like, you know, poles apart, like MIT versus UMass Medical School. And then UMass Medical School also gave me the opportunity to be an executive board member for their entrepreneurship uh, accelerator, which is M2D2. Of course, it was very medical device focused, but it was awesome because I got to see new technologies, business development, uh, advise, um, you know, entrepreneurs on their business plan, IP strategies and such. And then based on these opportunities, I then uh, started in um, T1D Exchange, which was a type 1 diabetes-focused uh, startup uh, opportunity, very different from any of the other opportunities because it was a service uh, provider in the sense that their opportunity or their asset was services that they could provide to uh, any company that was interested in uh, developing a set of tools, products, um, uh, either medical device or therapeutics to help type 1 diabetes uh, people suffering uh, through that uh, disease. Um, and then um, while at the startup, I mean, I realized that I enjoyed being at the startup. I learned a ton in the two and a half years I was there, but I also learned what I liked and what I disliked. And I realized that I was good at project management, but I hated project management. <laughs> Um, but, you know, people people don't see what you like, what you don't like. They see what you're good at and then throw things in those directions. And I'm like, and especially in a startup, right? You have to do everything. There's nobody else who's going to pick it up. You want the company to be successful. You pick up whatever, wherever the gaps are. You you keep doing. And I, after two and a half years, I'm like, mm, no, I need to get back to where I enjoy what I was doing, what I uh, really cared about. And I decided that I wanted to be back in a university setting, which gave me, again, a plethora of information, knowledge for the sake of knowledge, and then yet feel that I'm doing something in, you know, getting it uh, out there. So that's how I got back into Emory. And I've been here for eight years. I love every minute of it. No, I love it. No, and, and I think just, you know, hearing each of your shared passions, you know, for, uh, impact, you know, that's the word. I don't think either of you necessarily use that word, but it's the word that keeps throbbing in my mind as I think about your work and what you know what you're drawn to that that impact. And you know, Gayathri, your point around the science being for the sake of knowledge, which is critical when you think about basic research. You know, it's it underpins you know um, you know all the great discoveries, but the ability to kind of take that one step further and create impact, um, meaning finding an application um, and, you know, solving a problem um, is true in innovation. And, you know, part of, as, as I hear each of you talk, the, you know, the, to, to create that impact, you know, you, you often have, you know, um, very motivated research individuals, uh, faculty members, clinicians um, that are all, you know, really motivated to kind of go beyond the science. You know, um, one, I think, you know, trend in the last 10 years has been universities have invested very aggressively into their innovation uh, platform and ecosystem so they could attract individuals that like that. They like the discovery and they like the application. And as a result, you know, you have more of those individuals uh, populating, you know, great institutions like, like Emory and Georgia Tech and University of Chicago and, and whatnot. And and yet, then, as those individuals, you know, are are part of that academic infrastructure, there is a great need, though, for their connection to the outside, the window to the world, you know. And maybe I'll um, uh, point my question to you, Edie, uh, on that note: is just 
how maybe you could talk a little bit about your your role at CGHI and what what are the kinds of things that are uh, part of an ecosystem. We use that word loosely with our audience, um, but but when we describe ecosystem, it's like all the pieces of the puzzle that that faculty member you know at Emory has got an idea. Now they need to get it out to the world. What are some of the things that you're working on at CGHI that you know are focused around this um, increased number of people that are trying to move in that direction, but but they need to access the the market or the ecosystem? I think one of the biggest things that we're working on at the Center for Global Health Innovation is establishing an infrastructure of community navigators and community health workers across the country to be able to be mobilized and deployed in the same sense as the Army Corps of Engineers, uh, not just for pandemic or crisis management, but for ongoing vital clinical research opportunities that under served, under-resourced, undervalued, and under-informed communities just are not aware of. How do we close the gaps, the huge health equity gaps of access, opportunity, and distribution? And it's not an easy answer. It's a very complex problem because you have 14 major industry sectors that interconnect, as we call it, ecosystem. And each one of those sectors have biases that are either known or unknown that affect everyone. And the problem that we have is, at the end of the day, we cannot take a drug to market without there being diverse data sets. You can't attract talent to stay here if we're not giving them the resources they need to grow. We can't attract executives to come here and mentor and mold and close some of those gaps and create that much-needed co-creation unless you have them opportunities for them to move around and do what they need to do. So we we have all of the the mis- we have all of the uh, jigsaw puzzles here in Atlanta and a Georgia area, and we're pulling from resources. Uh, John, you're able to pull with Portal Innovations from what, what's going on in Chicago. Uh, G and I are able to pull from what's going on in Massachusetts. I also am able to leverage our network that we have in California, as well as what we have at the EU. And now we're uh, working with countries in Africa in regards to their innovation. So we can't keep going to the same sources. And I, I love University of Chicago, I love Stanford, I love Harvard, a lot of great science have come out of that that we're all affected by. But you know, it's a lot of things that's going on at the HBCUs. It's a lot of things that's going on in Nigeria. It's a lot of things that's going on in Croatia. It's a lot of things that's going on in so many different places that are not being interconnected and woven. And how are we going to do that? And that's through digital applications. But also, how can we uh, mobilize at the hyper-local level and be able to sustain what we're doing to able to uh, duplicate that, that it's applicable in Italy uh, to Nigeria. So it's, uh, it's, it's a very complex problem that we have, but if we don't start solving for the basic issues, we're just going to keep wasting billions. Uh, our industry as a whole has an 86% failure rate for enrollment deadlines for clinical trials. We can solve for that. Our industry as a whole has only 95% 
sale lines that go back to European males. How on earth can we say that we can bring drugs to market if we don't have diverse data sets? That means we need to educate the public on what goes into clinical trials. Let's educate them on biobanking. Where do they go to participate? How do we incorporate the opportunities in clinicaltrials.gov so people can do their own research? So not only are we looking to close those gaps, but we're also looking to empower through health, through education, and through economic opportunities for those who have been, um, I wouldn't say left out, but have not been included in the full discussion so that we can all do better and do well at the same time. You're connecting a lot of dots. I would like to add one other uh, comment to what Ed just said. I feel um, in a, like, you know, all these things require a lot of trust and building of trust. And of course, building of trust mm-hmm. starts with the people. Mm-hmm. But it also, if you're talking about international, like, you know, other countries, it also uh, builds with a government and uh, bureaucrats in the government to understand nobody's trying to steal anything. Nobody's trying to do anything underhanded. It's all about getting better health uh, opportunities and outcomes. Absolutely. But again, you've described a very complex, you know, set of constituents, you know, and uh, the, the what I like about what you've talked about, the dots that you're connecting are dots that weren't necessarily being connected before, whether it be, you know, global access, ED, you know, different types of populations, or even locally, you know, the prioritization of diverse data sets and um, diversifying um, the clinical trial population, not only, you know, is it effective at solving new problems, but even from a business perspective, the economics that go with that line up as well, right? Why not try to solve problems that aren't being solved, deliver solutions to patients that have not gotten access to it or solve problems, you know, like sickle cell, you know, look at companies like CRISPR and the work they're doing um, that are going after important problems that will be, they'll be rewarded for, you know, that going after, you know, uh, diverse diseases of diverse populations. I, and, and so connecting dots in or, or as those transformations take place, meaning kind of the, the the way it's been done for so long, and the same groups that you know that that have been doing it for so long, you know, it takes disruptive uh, people like you, Edie, and then the the ecosystems that that support them. Maybe I'll just ask to, to segue with Gayathri as you think about going back to, um, you know, what you're experiencing in Atlanta, what you're trying to build within your role, maybe describing your role a little bit more specifically at Emory and what you're building there and, and what, what are you, what do you see as the opportunities to build? And again, in a diverse way, uh, with different, you know, uh, types of partners, for example, um, that are different from maybe what your experience was, you know, in, in, in Boston, which is amazing, very transparent, highly active ecosystem that does great things. But what can you do differently in Atlanta? So um, when I uh, was even looking at Atlanta, I had zero connections in Atlanta. And I was, uh, I was moving to Atlanta for a very personal reason. My brother was here and I was like, let me see if I can move here. <laughs> you know, cut and dry. That was the reason I was looking into Atlanta. And I'm like, okay, I have zero connections. So now my I have my work cut out and I'm like, okay, now I have to build, build connections. Um, and uh, it took me about nine months. Uh, and I met with a lot of different stakeholders. I met with GRA. I met with Emory um, Tech Transfer uh, folks. I met with Emory's uh, Health Sciences folks. I met with Georgia Tech. I met with... Um, uh, that time it was uh, it, GCMI, 
everybody under the sun, uh, whoever would want to talk to me, I was meeting with them. And all uh, this was before the pandemic times. So it was all on the phone because I was not in Atlanta. I was in in, um, Boston. So, uh, you know, I met with all of them. I tried to learn what the landscape was because I was coming from Boston. As Edie can say, I mean, Boston is already developed, established in the life sciences. And both of us are life sciences or were are coming with that life science lens. I mean, we don't, at least I didn't know any other lens to uh, look through. And I'm like, oh, it has Georgia Tech, it has Emory, it has UGA, it has Georgia State, it has all the entire ecosystem there. It didn't have me. So I I mean, (laughs) jokes aside. (laughs) But now it does. I mean, jokes aside, I feel like, uh, (laughs) uh, I mean, I, you know, the idea was that, you know, it had potential. And but then, you know, I also saw uh, talking to many people, I tried to see where there were what were the reasons they felt that was not making it equal to Boston or San Diego or San Francisco. And, you know, some things came to mind. One of them, uh, Edie pointed out, we don't have the infrastructure for people, experts to come in and jump around. I mean, we may have only a few, um, not even a few, a couple largish uh, pharmaceutical companies here to speak of. But the pandemic allows us to have them here remotely working wherever they want. So in some ways, I'm I'm wondering whether the pandemic has opened um, certain barriers or broken some barriers um, and we may not have a case to make that uh, an issue anymore. You know, public transportation is still an issue. But, you know, that is also being circumvented. People are thinking about, you know, other ways, maybe not um, bus, uh, maybe not trains, but maybe bus rapid transport, blah, blah, blah. So there are a lot of options here. And, you know, I if somebody asked me, hey, you live in Atlanta, people talk about traffic. Have you encountered any traffic? And I'm like, no, not really, because I never uh, my whole point is to beat the traffic. I'm here at 630 in the morning. I'm at home by four o'clock in the afternoon. So no traffic for me. Right. But um, those are the kinds of things that people do get concerned with. And we need to make sure that we understand that. But from a from a landscape, life science landscape perspective, I think this is equal, if not better than anywhere else. It's untapped uh, or limitedly tapped because people don't know what we have here. And we have tons here in every uh, aspect. And so we only can go up from here. And so I I feel we are not limited in any way. We can only grow and become better. What are some of the things you're seeing at Emory or maybe um, uh, trends or examples of the percolation that you're beginning to see there with regards to kind of from the innovation um, source, you know, out into the market. Can you maybe comment on some of your observations around what's happening at uh, Emory in particular? I feel from a, a bioinformatics standpoint, AI and health, that is a huge trend that I'm seeing. Ca- uh, you know, cancer therapeutics, cancer diagnostics, uh, cardiovascular um, r- research-related opportunities, either from a uh, clinical trial perspective, infectious disease, vaccines. I mean, these are just some of the things that I can throw out there as opportunities where we are uh, making a huge dent. Uh, but, you know, we are uh, an R1 uh, research institute. We have tons going on even outside of what I said, right? But um, these are just some of the areas where I felt uh, people who are outside looking in can already see peaks uh, in terms of uh, noise going up. 
yeah, I know our team certainly sees that, and that's not lost on you know other um, groups that are beginning to look at the area, whether it be venture capitalists or corporate venture arms of larger companies, that are all kind of curious and seeing you know what's happening, and and very intrigued by the very interesting activity that's beginning to um, develop and, and accelerate. I think one of the things that's exciting also about Atlanta is you know, um, Edie, to your point earlier on, I mean, if you're going to innovate then you need to take risk and you need to open up to new ideas and people, different people with different ideas as well. Um, you know, Atlanta being kind of a gateway to the Southeast um, and, and some of the organizations that are in place um, are really, in my opinion, quite advanced when you think about, um, you know, health equity and, and uh, diversity and inclusion. I wonder, Edie, if you could just comment on your observations there because, that alone can, you know, move the needle in terms of being able to help, you know, biopharma companies that are looking to grow, access uh, different and diverse talent, whether it be part of the team or, you know, part of clinical trials, part of, you know, the overall development landscape, um, or in in the caregiving. At the end of the day, at the end of the day, we're all trying to provide a solution to a patient that that has a problem. Defining those problems more in a more diverse way. Um, has benefits, as we talked about earlier. But I just wonder if you could comment a little bit about, you know, Atlanta's unique role and position as it relates to kind of leading the charge in um, health equity innovation. Oh, absolutely. And uh, one thing I want to focus people on is redirecting their attention from just DEI as being optional, that's nice, uh, kumbaya. We're opening marketplace opportunities that have not have been researched or touched at the level it should have been at this point. Second, um, you're, you're, you're looking at indications that have been gone unaddressed. So that means if you're a pharmaceutical company working on something in regards to lupus, if you're working on something in regards to different aspects of oncology, you have an untapped marketplace, and then you need to engage with community navigators and community health workers to help be the trusted messengers in those communities. Uh, the media and everyone like to sum up the COVID hesitancy, oh, mistrust and this and mistrust that happened overnight. You want to point to two things. You want to point to Henrietta Lacks, and you want to point to the Tuskegee experiments. But you're not talking about how Dr. Sims, who was a, a, a loved doctor in gynecology that was at Harvard University, and how they performed experiments on black slave women for the betterment of white women's health. That was passed, those stories were passed down generations to us. We're not talking about uh, negritude that was passed down to generations to us. So we have to do more in regards to rebuilding trust it's not even rebuilding. It's, it's starting anew because we talk about a system that's broken. There is right. no broken system. The system is fixed. It's, it's yeah, executing right. on the way it was built to do. So we have to do things differently. We have to build a clinical trials culture because right now it takes about 20 years and $5 billion to get a drug to market. If we actually were to concentrate on those gaps and closing them, how about we take a look at getting a drug to market with less than a billion dollars and getting a drug to market in 10 years. So how do we go about doing that, working with the different partners, working with the FDA? We talk about, for example, uh, we, we don't have enough diverse data sets in clinical trials research. How come we're not looking at where the issue is? Uh, the, the Caucasian male, middle-aged, uh, set benefits, full-time career, he can come and go as he please. 
and it allows for him to participate in clinical trials. How about we make it a way that we uh, petition our government to go to our corporations to allow for people to have the time off to participate in clinical trials. We protect their jobs. We also enable them to get to the clinical trial sites or wherever they can. How do we need to remove some of the burden to clinical trial participation? And level the playing field. So these level are things the that field. can be solved yeah. for. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So let's open up that marketplace of opportunities at the same time, uh, expand ways for people to participate in biomedical research. And you can do that here in Atlanta. It's probably one of the most diverse data sets of different types of people, different economic backgrounds, race, religion, ethnicity, uh, cultures. Uh, we also have uh, diversity in workforce. We have, you're talking about that untapped market. People say they can't find black talent. Well, if you keep looking under your stapler and looking under your mouse and saying, well, I can't find any black people yeah. here, why are you going to the same places? It is over 100 HBCUs in the United States, but we still keep, keep saying the sure. same five over, which I love working with. But we're not looking at Southern University has a preclinical lab. We're not looking at some of the talent that is coming out of Fort Valley, that's coming out of Prairie View. Yeah. But we keep going to the same. We go to the same what's equivalent to the Ivy Leagues, and now we're going to the same what's equivalent to uh, the Black Ivies. And we're still saying we don't have enough talent. The talent is there. You just can't keep looking at the same places. Yeah, the way you're describing it, too, is just almost analogous to, again, as we think about the life sciences ecosystem distributing and diversifying, you know, beyond, you know, the concentrated geographies where they have historically been really focused, um, you know, Boston and the Bay Area, where they'll continue to grow and thrive, rightfully so. But this mm -hmm. distribution to other alternative places, accessing different people, different communities, different ideas, different workforces, um, there's a lot of analogy to what you've just described in terms of how you access true innovation um, and and get to new solutions that you know create um, greater outcomes for patients and economic success for the people that are behind you know advancing those those ideas and mm -hmm. you know that's the the other thing as, as well when I when maybe when I come back to the Atlanta um, life sciences ecosystem um, Gayathri any comments around your observations? in terms of like what's working in Atlanta right now, where do you think are the areas where uh, more resource could be provided? You know, if you think about some of the major categories, um, some is talent, right? It is the talent there. And I think about, again, the historically black colleges, uh, you know, the institutions like Emory and Georgia Tech and others that we, we often talk about, you know, you've got the, the, the groundswell of, you know, emerging scientific talent, you know, business professionals. Um, but maybe you could just comment around, you know, what what's needed more on the talent side um, as you look over the course of the next decade for the ecosystem to grow, and then other things, other gaps. You know, is it is it venture capital? Um, what what are some of the other things that are part of the equation that maybe are beginning to form but aren't aren't yet there now? Yeah, I think. Uh, let me start off by saying. Uh, uh, saying what's the difference between Boston and other uh, ecosystems, strong, strong ecosystems that exist right now in Atlanta. And Edie said it so well, what our strength is our demographics. I mean, we have all kinds of people, like in all um, ways to be able to plug in in all kinds of 
areas, either clinical trials in uh, from a workforce, workforce standpoint and all that, right? But what is missing, that's where I think, based on my sense, what is missing is from a, a talent pool, the mid to senior level, not the top level, not the um, up and coming level, because we have tons of students who are ready to go and sure. can climb up. It's what happens the next third, fourth job, right? That level, mid, mid to senior. That's where I think we'll have to figure out how to compel people to come and stay in Atlanta, see what it is, right? I mean, and that can only happen if they live here to understand how wonderful this place is. The second thing is if you are trying to um, not recruit largish companies to relocate here, but you're trying to create new companies who start here and stay here, mm -hmm. then... Um, I mean, Portal is doing a one wonderful, full job by you know establishing its incubator here. Um, but beyond that, is there a way to educate uh, and work with the venture capitalists? It's not like we don't have money in Atlanta. We have a lot of investors here. They're just not uh, used to investing in the life sciences. They are not experienced in uh, ex uh, you know uh, investing in the life sciences. So you know, people such as you, uh, John, and your friends. If they can work with the uh, investors in Atlanta and explain yeah. to them that it's not um, complicated, it is just like investing anywhere else. Yes, you may not get the money in two years, but you still are help uh, helping create the ecosystem to be robust so that you never have to worry about um, going it alone. Yeah. I don't know whether I'm answering your question, but I yeah, think absolutely. those are the two areas where I feel you can specifically help John. Yeah. No, that's, I, I, think, think, uh, I think noted. Sorry, Edie, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, no, I was just going to say that um, one of the issues that I have is this whole, uh, with the venture capitalists and our brethren that, as we know, 70% of all capital dollars are coming out of Boston and Silicon Valley. It's, it's no other way around that. But we need to get them here into Atlanta to talk to the venture capitalists that are here to demonstrate that it is possible that we do have patent portfolio companies here that you can invest in and take them to the next level. And then um, it's it was depressing to see coming out of J.P. Morgan that uh, we still had less than 1% investment of venture capitals into diverse founders after George Floyd, after all the pledges, after all the promises, after all the press releases. It, we should be embarrassed as an industry. And we should be, I, I've actually been petitioning to have J.P. Morgan moved from San Francisco to Atlanta just to get, a, you can't say that you're looking for diverse talent and keep going to the same places. Why don't we just take it out of what we're used to and demonstrate we want to see something different and experience something different? Yeah, no, I, and I think um, you've each hit it on the head and that's definitely our observation and why we think there's opportunity. There, there's risk in that because, you know, if you're moving and you're you're the first at anything, you're, you're taking on outsized risk. But you can be rewarded in a big way if you can be patient and smart. And that's definitely our thesis as we think about, you know, the opportunity for Portal and others that we work with that have aligned interests and see and will see the value over time. Um, there's a, there's a, there's a, there, there's a market creation phase in a sense where yeah. you're putting together for the first time some of these teams and companies and proposing that they can, you know, start and scale in in a single ecosystem. That's new. It's foreign. It's different. And anytime that happens, and it breaks the mold, um, it it takes time to to move out of that. And then and then you need to to break it. You need 
successes. So you need companies and examples where you can say, look at look at what's been done. And then typically, um, there can be you know um, you know a, a follower approach. Once once it's been de-risked, then that typically is when the next phase of of capital and talent starts to move in. And I just you know my observations of Chicago are there's a lot of similarities to where we were a few years ago. Um, that that remind me a lot of where Atlanta is today and how quickly things can change. And Chicago is still a young, fragile ecosystem, but a lot of those things that um, were not in place uh, are beginning, those gaps are beginning to fill in. And as success uh, happens, you know, a company does a big Series A at a stepped-up valuation, a company gets public, a company gets acquired, those things start to happen. Um, you start to see, you know, the talent pool upgrading. There's more people that are curious. They want to be part of these teams. There's people that are leaving larger companies that say, hey, I want to give a startup a chance. And and so that diversity of knowledge, diversity of, of backgrounds begins to infuse the the ecosystem. And then, you know, over time, you have individuals that are outside of the ecosystem that pay attention and say, I need to have exposure to that. I, I want to ensure that um, we're giving our organization, if I'm a venture firm or I'm a pharmaceutical company, every chance to have an outsized advantage. I know we're seeing a lot of um, interesting conversations with pharma companies that are partnering with us that are very excited to access new ecosystems where they just don't, they have blind spots. They don't really have that exposure. Um, and, you know, back to your words earlier, Gayathri, trust makes a big difference. So, you know, Portal or others like us acting as a trusted partner in places that are new also help to de-risk and then get more and more people to start to come. So it, it takes time. I think each of these endeavors do, do take time, but I think from where, you know, where we first engaged, in Atlanta, almost two years ago, it's where it is now. It's already moving and forming and and getting on the map to a greater degree. So I think um, those are the interesting things about you know a an ecosystem. In a way, you're starting like like we did here in Chicago. You're starting companies and you're starting ecosystems as well. It's a it's a it's a it's a more uh, entrepreneurial path, you know, for those that are that are interested. It's kind of like free soloing, you know. It's a <laughs> there's something to it, um, but the the rewards, you know, come at, at the top it, as long as you don't fall. <laughs> um, well, switching gears for a minute, just back on the personal stories, um, you know, Edie, you know, what what was what what brought you into your first part of your career, um, kind of working, you know, in uh, in sport, the sports industry, um, what was the early kind of uh, formative stages in through high school, up through college? Because you know, I'm just trying to maybe share with our audience, you know, who, who is very um, interested and maybe not part of biotech right now, but intrigued and interested in some connection to it. Um, can you talk a little bit about your early path that led you, um, you know, out of college and and then into uh, sports. Uh, we we heard the second part of your story, which which I think will then tie back to your early journey. Um, I've always loved health. I've had a great example. If anyone met my grandmother, uh, she's <laughs> she's Granny on a gram, and she still roller skates. She still dances. She still skis. She still golfs. She's just an amazing person, and she instilled on us being physically fit. Yeah ties into everything that we are. You can't 
go, you can't focus on certain things if you're not physically fit. You're, it, you can't physically go do things if you're not physically fit. And so it's just when you have someone as, as a role model and looking at her crew, um, that they still skis and it's possible. So it's just that I, um, I, it's just coming from the South side of Chicago and how corporations have contributed to some of the, the health crisis that we're in. Let's leverage some of those corporate relationships now to bring us out of that health crisis. That's one good thing about Alliance, and I'll come back to it, is that I love working with our corporate partners. Um, you have the shipping capital of the world. You have supply chain management and logistics. So the fact that we have Microsoft Health, Delta Health, uh, DHL, uh, so many different aspects of digital innovation and co-creation and shipping and supply chain management that we're looking to address. Corporations have, um, they may not have direct uh, pipelines, of course, into the discovery aspect, but it's just another arm of, of a force that we can use to leverage improving health outcomes. And um, I, I, I wanted to pull out some of those corporations that targeted their market place in uh, challenged communities. And I wanted to be one of the people, one of the voices and ambassadors for my community back then and to now, let's get healthier. Yeah. Let's be more mobile. Yeah. What, what indications are hindering you from doing that? Let's mm-hmm. close, remember everything boils down to three things, access, opportunity, and distribution. And how do we close those gaps for the underinformed, the under-resourced, the undervalued, and the under, uh, underserved? So me always wanted to be healthier and also show how health can contribute to improving and extending the quality of life. Excellent. You just can't be healthier if you're dependent on X, Y, and Z. So I've always been involved in sports. I was a sports editor and a sports writer because I was not worth a nickel being a sports athlete. <laughs> Do not look at me for team sports. I was the most useless person that you could probably pick on. But I'll be that person that's critical and analyzing and trying to get people to move around and build out their strengths. And let's close those gaps again to make us stronger. So that's what led me. Inspired by your granny. Inspired by granny on the ground. <laughs> and so, and as you can see, um, you, one thing I, I love about our industry is you don't have to come from science to be in it. It's been what I've been doing for the last 15 years, but I came from a sports entertainment and um, film background. And as you can see, I'm not sure if you guys can see, I still have, I got my roller skating, I got my instruments. Nice. And you could be, have different talents and different, and that's what our industry needs is people from different views. We yeah. don't have talent wars. We have clone wars at some point. We just have these these Star Wars characters and we just keep cloning the the uh, the materials. Let me stop. Okay, because I can, as you can see, I'm a Star Wars fan too. So it just shows that our industry loves difference. Our industry capitalize off of it. Our industry needs it. You also need that entrepreneurial spirit no matter how old or how long you've been in the industry, we love and drink our industry. And some points we choose impact over income because we don't get into it for the money. We get in it because we want to help others. And this is a great place. Our industry is changing and evolving. It's going to be jobs that we've never heard of now that's going to be around 10 years from now. I've never even heard of the term biofuelist. It's so many different aspects of our 
industry that is going to catapult us into a healthier century. And it takes all of us to do that, though. I love your story. And and so uh, important, just to underscore, that you don't need to be a scientist to be in the life science industry. And uh, I mean, I'm, I'm testimony to that, too. I mean, I love science. I'm always at the interface of science. I've learned enough to be dangerous, as they say. But, you know, finance training by background and really just en- enjoy the path in terms of the potential impact and just kind of... Um, worked hard to, to, to be part of it um, and found, uh, you know, that it was very possible to not be a scientist but still be very engaged in the creative elements of building companies and making impact and bringing drugs to market. Gayathri, how about you? Early on, early on in your uh, journey, you know, kind of tracing back to before you decided, in your case, you know, you took a more traditional path into life sciences being a scientist. But maybe you could talk uh, like Edie has done um, about your early path. What motivated you to kind of go down that pathway when you were in high school, when you were in college? Were there, um, you know, uh, role models that you saw that you wanted to follow or what, what drove you down that path? Sure. So um, although on paper, my my uh, path, career path looks very, um, you know, uh, pro forma or, you know, defined and logical, Actually, it is not very logical. So I, um, uh, I'm. If you ask me who am I, I'm two things. I'm a dancer and I'm a scientist. Those are the two things. And so you know, early on, um, you know, I've always had dance in my um, life. Always, I'm uh, a you know trained uh, Indian classical dancer. Uh, but you know, um, I did my bachelor's in uh, biochemistry. I did my master's in my biotech. And I joined uh, a university to start my PhD. And I hated, after a year and a half there, I hated my experience there. And I'm like, I'm going to, I'm done with science for now. I'm just going to jump uh, into dance. But that, you know, you can't just switch into dance because you want to. Although it's been part of my life. I mean, to be a professional, you have to be committed right right from the get-go. So anyway, I did that for three years you know, try to make ends meet. And it was hard. I mean, and, you know, there was not a lot of joy. It was very angst driven. And I was like, okay, um, science has to be my bread earner and dance has to be my passion. So that's how I came back to uh, doing my PhD at The Ohio State University. That's the only university I applied and I got back onto science. And my love for science is the reason I exist in and do whatever I do, but my passion for dance is why I can be sane. And um, to Edie's point, uh, for me, exercise for the sake of exercise is not fun. Um, Dance makes it fun for me. Hmm. So it's, it's not really exercise for me because I'm dancing, I'm having fun. So yeah. That's amazing. Wow. That's, that's really cool. Um, You know, maybe given that we're kind of winding down, maybe I'll ask, you know, each of you to consider uh, this question again, as we try to inspire the next generation of people that want to walk in your shoes. You know, we have a lot of uh, ears out there in the audience uh, trying to think about how they they might fit. Um, Could I ask each of you, maybe starting with Edie, to what what advice would you have to uh, someone that's kind of coming up through high school, um, maybe just getting into college? you know, getting them to think about what could be next for them and how uh, the pathway into life sciences could be for them. Just any any words of wisdom or advice? I would say that, 
it's okay to daydream and it's okay to fail. I remember coming up, I was always fascinated about the human body. I've always loved science, but I was never geared or uh, pointed in a direction of going into science. I was always geared to go into this direction or that direction. I remember I come from a different generation and um, now more women and more women of color are being, uh, having programs and are being offered opportunities. So it's okay to daydream. It's okay to take chances and fail. It's going to lead you to where you're supposed to be anyway. And um, your trajectory is going to have an impact know that you're going to impact others. It's people that I still come in contact with today that say, Edie, I had a conversation with you years ago and this is where I'm at now. It's just from that one conversation that led me to doing X, Y, and Z. So, um, and then seek out your own mentors, seek out your own personal board of directors to help you along the way. Um, as a woman of color coming up through this industry and didn't have a direct path, it has been difficult times. And it's still difficult to sometimes walk into a room uh, where it's mostly Caucasian males and not seeing many people. So when I, when I, G, no, when I first saw her down here, I instantly hugged her. I didn't even, I've called her G for so long. I don't think I remembered her full name, mm-hmm. but it was just that sense of we can do this together, yeah. that we are, uh, we're, we're, we're ambassadors. We can speak for the industry. We're, we're two trusted voices. Either she and I can go anywhere we want, but we can pick up that phone and people in Boston and California and the UK will know Edie and G has gone through the trenches. They have learned. They have worked with the scientists. We've worked with the venture capitalists. We've worked with the lobbyists. We've worked with the politicians. We've worked with the FDA. They know that we may may not be an expert in one area, but we do have solid touch points in those 14 areas, and we will get to learn and get to know what we need to know to close that gap for you. So it's, um, I would tell anyone, take those chances and be daring and this generation is definitely doing that. I love this, what they call themselves the slash generation, the hyphen generation. They're not pigeonholed or locked into doing one right. thing. Yep. They can follow their passion and follow their money makers all at the same time. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Gayathri, or sorry, should I say G? I, anything goes. G, guy, <laughs> G, anything. Um, for me, uh, based on my experience, I would say, um, you know, try. Whatever you want to try, try. Right. I mean, don't be afraid that, oh, my God, what is somebody going to think about this? What is somebody going to say? Try. But if you don't try, you have no idea whether it would have worked or it did not. It would not have worked. Right. I'm so glad I got to try three years of doing just dance. I mean, who gets to do that? Now, my life is enriched because I can say, yeah, I tried that. It was not for me. But, you know, at least I tried it and then made the decision to move out of that. So I, I feel trying and trying different things is important. Uh, I'm, um, I am, and not be afraid is also important. Um, I'm not the kind of person who always likes to have like 100, the plan A, plan B, plan C, plan D. Uh, if I want something, I'm just going to jump in. Uh, mm-hmm. And sometimes it can be scary. Of course, it's scary for me, right. for my husband. My yep. God, he he's like, oh, my God. I mean, <laughs> here she goes again. <laughs> yeah, there she goes. Exactly. There she goes again, uh, going off on a tangent. But uh, I think um, that has been a good experience uh, and has served me well. It has, of course, been eye opening and nerve wracking and scary and painful. Sure. But I wouldn't give that up ever. Very entrepreneurial. 
Well, um, as we close down the conversation, I just want to say I am totally in awe and um, really inspired by each of your work. The world is grateful for your efforts so far, but you're really just getting started too. And I'm looking forward to uh, continuing to collaborate with you in Atlanta, but but beyond too. The things that come through this conversation too are, it's not any one place. It's the connection of all these things and connecting these dots that become required so that any you know, one place can uh, make an impact uh, and its community can benefit and succeed over time. So I'm very grateful for the conversation and thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and your journey and your your advice for our uh, listeners today. Thank you. Thank, thank you for, for having, having us. Thank, thank, thanks for joining us today. It was another great episode. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with our guests today and were inspired the way I was. Looking forward to reconvening again in two weeks. Please visit our website at labratstounicorns.com. We welcome any of your comments, feedback, ideas. If you want me to ask certain questions of guests or you have ideas of people that we should be interviewing. That is all goodbye.